Father, this is your world. You rule over it. You shine in everything in this world that was designed to reflect your glory, the wonders of creation. Lord, even reflections of that glory are seen in men, even in every act of goodness. It's a reflection of your nature in a sense, but that glory most wonderfully and brightly and truly shines forth in your people, those who are redeemed by Christ and who offer to you lives of good works that are the outflow of faith in you and directed to your glory. And we know, Lord, that though the wrong seems oft so strong as we sing that you are the ruler yet, in Christ you who died and rose again will be satisfied in the accomplishment and the fulfillment of all that is promised to you as our Messiah. And as promised to you, we participate in. And so we anticipate this day and say with John, come, Lord Jesus, come, and quickly. And we ask now that you would teach us as we open your word together and that you would prepare our hearts to come to your table. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we're going to take this morning and... uh, As I mentioned last week, uh, begin to look at some different topics as we looked last week at the topic of temptation. This week we'll look at the topic of biblical giving, the topic of biblical giving. Uh, But before I do that, I meant to mention first that uh, there is a book. Uh, Y'all got the email last night. It's called uh, Gentle and Lowly. I read this book, I don't know, whenever, not long after it came out, maybe six months or whatever ago. But uh, it was a wonderful book. It's short little chapters. And even as was said in the email, which was a short, cl- uh, a short comment about it, uh, it really is a book that just unfolds at different angles the heart of Christ for his people, the heart of Christ for sinners. So uh, as I mentioned, the publisher has given out uh, you know, free copies to churches. And so I, I signed up for that. And those free copies are in the hallway. So be sure to grab yours uh, and remember one per family. Uh, With that said, this morning, let me introduce our topic, which is uh, biblical giving. And that's been noted, of course, in your bulletin, biblical giving. I've been asked about this topic many times over the years to actually do a message on giving. And uh, I I haven't uh, for a variety of reasons. uh, But one is just it's never really come up in in what we've been uh, going through in terms of our passages that we've looked at. Uh, But also, I don't ever really think about it that much. Actually, I don't think about giving or that kind of thing, even though it is an important topic. Um, And that is because uh, the mission, really, of the preacher is to exalt Christ. And if Christ is exalted in the hearts of his people, uh, then giving is a natural outflow of that. And I would say that has been the character of this church uh, in our time here. It's never never even seemed like a need uh, to preach on giving because we've always had such a generous Church, We've always had those who grasped the gospel and as an outflow of that were uh, generous in what they've given. And that includes you too, of course, not least of which we have these chairs paid for. How long was it? Just a few weeks, right? We have 100 chairs. Uh, That's just one small example. But over the course of my time here, I've seen needs met over and over and over again within the body and within the church. Nonetheless, this is a topic that it's important to uh, be clear on, and it is a major theme of Scripture, and it is something that we often see misrepresented uh, in the church, and so it's worthy to take a little bit of time and consider the idea of biblical giving. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do. Uh, and this morning is going to be part one. Now, I'm going to try to finish this up in two messages, so one message this week and then one message next week. It could potentially go into 
or in two weeks. Uh, it could potentially go into three messages, but uh, hopefully not. But this morning in part one, what I want to do is look at the issue, not of biblical giving, but by, uh, through the lens of the Old Covenant uh, tithe, through the Old Testament tithe. We often speak of our tithes and our offerings, and we speak of uh, should we tithe as Christians. We're going to delve into that more on the next message, but uh, I want to look first at what, is it, what was the Old Testament tithe, and, and, and then eventually we'll look at how that uh, reflects, uh, is to be reflected in the church, but certainly how it was to be reflected in the hearts of God's people uh, in the Old Covenant. So it's biblical giving part one, and this is then the tithe of the Old Testament. And we're going to look under, under two major headings. One, an explanation of the tithe and, then the tithe, and then what the purpose of the tithe is. An explanation of the tithe and the purpose of the Old Testament tithe. Well, let's begin with an explanation of the tithe then. First, by considering the meaning of the term. Uh, the meaning of the term is quite simply this, a tenth. It means a tenth. That's the idea of the tithe. It is uh, often associated with the idea or, or uh, possibly with having ten fingers. In other words, ten fingers represent a unit, and therefore a tenth represents a unit, and in this case, a unit of giving, a tenth. And so that's interesting. But in either case, outside of the meaning of a tenth, the main idea of the tithe is that which is uh, given out of all that we possess and out of all that we have that is given as an act of worship. That being said, the idea of a tithe was not unique only to the nation of Israel, but many of ancient Near Eastern cultures uh, of that time had some kind of tithe uh, worked into the fabric of their identity and their worship of their gods and so forth. So the tithe is not uh, unique to the nation of Israel, although it does have unique characteristics within the covenant people of God. Uh, that being said, then let's consider then the practice of tithing under the Old Covenant. The practice of tithing under the Old Covenant. And of course, we're going to be bouncing around at, uh, several different verses uh, here, passages. Uh, the tithe predates that which of the Mosaic Covenant. So usually when we think of the tithe, we think of all the things that they were prescribed to do uh, under the law of Moses, and we'll get there. But the idea of giving, the idea of giving and particularly giving a tenth pre goes back all the way to the garden. It is one of the first acts that is noted after the fall of man. If you'll remember, Cain and Abel brought their offerings to the Lord. Essentially, that was a requirement of giving to the Lord, an expression of worship to him. And, of course, uh, Abel's he accepted and Cain's he did not. Uh, the first use of the term tithe is in Genesis chapter 28, verses 22. And this, you'll remember, well, maybe you don't remember the reference, but you'll remember the account, uh, is of Jacob in verses... Uh, Verse 22 of Genesis 28, Jacob is uh, fleeing away from his brother Esau. He's headed to a, a different land out of fear because he had lied and deceived and taken his brother's inheritance. Uh, while he's on this journey uh, to another land, he has a dream. And in this dream, he sees the vision of angels ascending and descending on a ladder. And he is overwhelmed by this dream. And he wakes up and he realizes that he has experienced God in that place. And then he says this in verse 22. 
He says, uh, or verse 21, he says, when I return to my father's house, when I return, well, actually, let me go to verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And so he acknowledges there, and it was somehow already in the mind, and so that indicates that this was uh, teaching at some level within the covenant people of God that they were to give, and particularly give, a tenth of what they owned as an expression of worship, an acknowledgement of God as their God. Uh, as a matter of fact, even before this, you'll remember that Melchizedek, when he met Abraham, was given by Abraham, the patriarch, a tenth of all of the spoils uh, of the war of the battle that he had just won. And so this idea of giving a tenth was in the consciousness of God's people. It was an expression of worship and acknowledgement of him as God, although it was by no means at this point anything official or anything systematized uh, that would come later when Israel was formed in, as a nation after their deliverance from Egypt and under the leadership of Moses. And it is at this point that a tithe was instituted as a part of the structural worship, as a part of the commandments of God as a nation, as a covenant nation, a nation of God's people. They were then to express this identity of the covenant express their faith in God as ruler and provider of all things by giving a tithe. Well, that being said, what was required in the tithe? Well, the tithe was essentially taken from two different categories. It was taken from whatever was produced in the field. So there was a tithe of grain and fruits and so forth from the field. And then there was a tithe of cattle and livestock and so forth, animals that they raised. They, these tithes, this tithe was 10% of both of these things and they were to be given uh, to God. That's clear. We'll look at a passage of that in just a moment in Leviticus 27. I want to note up front though, however, beyond this, beyond this clear requirement to give 10% from the field and 10% of the livestock, there's a great deal of discussion about the exact nature of what, what the tithes were and what exactly was required by a tithe within the Old Covenant. As a matter of fact, one said this, there's been a great deal of debate in rabbinic and critical scholarly circles concerning the tithe system in the history of Israel, and he notes, and for good reason. And that good reason stems primarily from a little bit of uh, from apparent discrepancy or difference of instructions given in Numbers 14 and then uh, again, or excuse me, Numbers 18 and Deuteronomy 14. Uh, some see these different instructions as referring either to one tithe uh, that was being explained from a, two different perspectives or of different tithes. Uh, supporting the idea of one tithe, and this is just to preface some of this. He says, uh, one author says this, in general, Numbers 18 views the tithe from the point of view of the Levites and priests, but Deuteronomy views it from the perspective of the nation as a whole, uh, the common people, uh, so forth. So there is some uh, effort in trying to understand exactly what the nature of the requirement was uh, from the people of God. However, commonly it is recognized that there were three distinct tithes required from the nation of Israel and from uh, the people of God. And they are these. First, that there was a general tithe, sometimes called the Levitical tithe. And it consisted of a tenth, again, of the produce of the field and of livestock. And let's just look quickly at some of these passages. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 27, 
uh, he notes this beginning in verse 30. He says, Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. It is something that belongs to the Lord. It is something set apart for the Lord. He gives some further instruction in verse 1. He says, If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth. And that is to say that if, as he was to bring his tithe to the place appointed by God, if he wanted to, uh, one suggests it was to lighten the load, essentially, of taking the tithe on the journey, uh, that he could, instead of bringing the tithe from the land, uh, he couldn't do this with an animal, but the tithe from the land, he could instead bring an equivalent in money, but adding one-fifth to it. And again, the idea there is probably so he couldn't take advantage of that uh, and work it, work it out, the system, in, in his favor. But this is a general tithe. This is a tithe from the land, and the tithe that could be substituted if one wanted to with uh, money, adding one-fifth uh, to it or 20%. Uh, and it was a tithe also from the livestock that he was to bring. And he goes on to say, he is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, uh, nor shall he exchange it, or if he does exchange it, and it shall be a, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed there, uh, referring to uh, the animals. Uh, he says, these are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses and the sons at Mount Sinai. So that's one tithe. It's just a general tithe. It, was, it uh, consisted of both the produce of the land and of the livestock. Uh, there is another tithe referred to that's connected with sacred meals or festivals. Uh, this is attended such celebrations as the Feast of the Passover, the Tabernacle, and Pentecost. Uh, let me just mention this to you in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Uh, another key text here. Uh, he says this in verse uh, 22. He talks about you shall tithe the produce of what you sow uh, that comes out of the field every year. He's, you will eat it in the presence of the God at the place where uh, he chooses. And he speaks of other things, new wine, oil, and then of the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. Uh, it is the distance, he gives some instructions. I'll come back to that. But he says here then in verses 28 and 29, at the end of every... And then and you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town. He has no portion or inheritance among you. At the end of every third year, you should bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town and uh, so forth. Here then is a, a tithe that is uh, set aside for sacred meals, a time when they are to come together in a festal mood from the people, uh, as the people of God to celebrate God's uh, deliverance uh, of them. There's a third tithe, and actually that's what he mentions here at the end. Uh, in verse 28 of Deuteronomy 14, if you're there. At the end of every uh, third year, he says, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. Uh, this is sometimes called the tithe of the poor or a charity tithe, and it was paid every three years. Now, the discussion here uh, is whether this tithe was in addition to the other tithes or whether it was in place of the other tithes. You notice that he says at the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce in that year, shall deposit it in your own town. Usually the tithe was to be taken to the sanctuary. That was the, the place where, the, the, in this case, the tabernacle, later the temple was, and they were to bring their tithes uh, yearly uh, to that place. On the third year, it was to be deposited in their own town. 
Now, again, some see this in part of the discussion. Some see this as emplacement in place of the regular tithe for that year. And some see it in addition to. Most likely, it is in addition to. It is over and above the normal tithe. But that's a point of discussion. Uh, if it was too far to travel... Uh, if it, to the sanctuary, then he mentions in verse 24, if you go back, then they were allowed a dispensation here to alleviate some of that. He says in verse 24, if the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the, your, your Lord God chooses to set his name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And then he talks about the celebration of the feast in verse 26. So there were some stipulations as well for those who could not make the distance and bring their tithe all the way to the sanctuary. So essentially, here's the idea. So they gave a tithe that was a general tithe from all of their produce and from all of their cattle. There were tithes also that they were to bring to special feasts, Passover, Tabernacles, and Pentecost. And then there was another tithe every third year that was to be added to their local towns and communities that was in support of the poor and the weak and the orphaned and so forth. So these are the various tithes that existed in the nation of Israel. Uh, just as a point of mention, in Nehemiah chapter 10, they instituted that all the tithes could be given to Levitical priests in their hometown. And it seems like what was before an option became uh, a regular part of the allowance of the worship of God's people. Now, what in total did the people give as tithes? Now, that's uh, just a, a brief summary. That's a, that's a long and uh, complicated discussion in terms of all the specifics and the nuances of tithing. But that's a general, general picture of the tithes in the nation of Israel. Uh, but what is the, the overall requirement that of God's people? Well, consider this. Because the 10% tithe was given twice a year and sometimes three times on the third year, that is the, to the poor, that tithe that was given in their own town, that meant that for two out of these three years, they gave 20% of their uh, total possessions, and then every third year, then they gave 30% of that year's income. Uh, although, again, just as a footnote here, if the Sabbath year was actually observed, very much, very often it wasn't, and the Sabbath year, Sabbath year was that on every seventh year that there was to be, uh, the fields were to be at rest, every, nothing was to be cultivated, and any loans that were owed and so forth were to be let go, but they weren't obligated for the seventh year, so if you averaged it all out, then it would have been about 20% uh, per year on those ties. Complicated, huh? Fun. We're going to get to the point of all this. This is just to give a, ge a general idea. But let me note this before we go on. Adding to this regular tithe, which was a normal part of their temple, their obligations as the people of God, there was in the transition to the monarchy in 1 Samuel chapter 8, an additional tithe that was related to the king's administration and the king's welfare and his home and so forth. Uh, let me read that for you in 1 Samuel. And then we're going to wrap this section up. But let me note this for you. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, if you're, uh, this is an account in chapter 8 verse 5 of the people who had asked for a king like the other nations. And so essentially God tells the people through the prophet Samuel, you're going to receive a king like the other nations, but he's going to act like a king of all the other nations. And he's going to require from you, the people, support for his kingdom, for his home, for his administration, for his army, so on and so forth. And it says, 
uh, in verse 5, uh, Behold, you have grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. This is people speaking to Samuel. Now appoint for us a king for us to judge us like all of the nations. And so he says, fine. And then the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice, verse 7, the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And then he tells them that you are to warn them. And what is the warning? He says this in verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before the chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards, your olive groves and give them to his servants. Look at this 15. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. And he will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his servants. And after all that, in verse 18, you will cry out on that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. In other words, you'll reap what you sow. So in addition to what they were normally to give as a part of just uh, the support of the temple and of the Levites and the priesthood, which I'll mention in a sec, they also were to give a tithe to the king in support of his, his home, as it were, essentially his house and his rule and his administration. So then, it is possible to estimate that the total percentage of income that Israelite owed could have been up to 60% of their possessions. That's a high figure, but it is possible under one calculation. Even if you take the three tithes and take them into one tithe, just talked about from different angles, but you include the, the tithes that are certain and then what the king imposed, then it means that the annual tithe still amounted to 30 or 40% of a person's income. So in that, you would include not only the tithe, but also sacrifices and other requirements. As a matter of fact, one summed it up this way. The Old Testament tithe was but the beginning of the contributions required by the religious establishment. Sacrifices, offerings, gifts for special occasions such as cleansing ceremonies and the like added to the religious economic demands. In addition, each Jew was expected to pay annually the half shekel or didrachma tax to the temple. The total levy for religious duties could come close to 50% of the income of a working person. It was a lot, basically. It was a lot. It was not merely a 10% tithe, but there were a variety of requirements financially from the people of God in support both of the nation and of the monarchy and as an expression of their relationship to God as his covenant people. So that's just the general, again, idea of the tithe in the Old Testament. Now, the reality is it's debated whether they actually fulfilled all of those tithes and actually paid them. At certain points, uh, they were obedient and did, but... Uh, most of their history is marked by disobedience, as we know. And uh, it's not sure that that was uh, always followed through in the history of the nation of people. But that is what was required. That is what was expected of them. 
Now, the more pertinent question is this. What is the purpose of the tithe? What was the purpose of the tithe? Well, it had, of course, a very practical purpose, as already mentioned. The first was this, to support the sanctuary, the Levites, and the priests. So the sanctuary then, when they were in the wilderness, was the tabernacle. Eventually, that became the temple, Solomon's temple, uh, later the second temple, and then by the time of the New Testament, Herod's temple, which was um, always getting, uh, which was his attempt to uh, establish favor with the people, but it's the support of the sanctuary, the Levites, and the priests. This was the main idea or or in practical effect of the tithes. And again, this is directly related to their theological identity as a nation. Uh, For the Levites, they were to receive directly from the tithes of the people as, and it was the means of their support. Let me uh, just mention one passage to you. In Numbers 18, he says this, and this is mentioned in different places, uh, in different ways. But uh, Numbers 18, verse 21, he says this. Or actually, let me get in verse 20. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they performed, the service of the tent of meaning, of meeting. So in other words, the Levites did not receive a share, a portion of land. They did not receive a, uh, as the other tribes did. So God gave to them the assignment of caring for the tabernacle and later the temple. And their support was to come from all of the nations who brought their tithes. And this was then upheld uh, the Levites to fulfill their function. Uh, and it was so that they could, as one noted, serve the Lord without distraction. The priests also were supported not only through the offerings that were brought to the temple and offered up by them, but also they were supported by a portion of the tithes that were given to uh, the Levites. I know this is complicated, but listen to this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, uh, you shall speak to the Levites and say to them when you, this is uh, Numbers 18 again. Uh, And say to them, when you take from the sons of Israel the tithe which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present an offering from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. In other words, part of the tithe that was given to the Levites was to be shared with uh, the priest. And in that way, the priest also were provided for by what uh, the people brought to the temple. This was a means of support and a means as an expression of worship. It was an expression of worship uh, to the Lord. Now the tithe and support of the Levites and the priest, again, draws attention to the fact that Israel had a theological identity. They were the covenant people of God. And so while it met practical needs, ultimately it was an expression of their recognition of God's covenant mercy to them that they had been redeemed from among the nations. The tithes then were inextricably bound to this great reality that was to mark every aspect of life within the old covenant and God's people is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbors yourself, what Jesus identified as the two great commandments. We'll get to the love your God and this is where we're gonna end up. But it was also, as we already noted, an expression of love for your neighbor. Now, again, in various ways, this is throughout the Old Testament. But let me remind you again what he said in Deuteronomy 14. 
That was the point of every third year. You should bring out the tithe of your produce that year, deposit in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance, we already covered that. But also the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you were to do. So the tithe was to support the function of the worship of the temple, the people who were responsible for taking care of all that. The tithe was also a means of supplying the needs of those who were weak and disenfranchised and needy among the people of God. It was an expression of mercy. It was an expression of his covenant. It was an expression of his care. But what was central to the idea of the tithe? Now let me get here, and this gets a little bit more to where uh, it gets to the heart of it and more to where we're going to and help us to set the framework or lead us into understanding of giving in the new covenant. But here was the center of it all. It was an expression of worship. It was an expression of worship. Ultimately, the tithes were to be a reflection of the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all of who you are. The end of the tithe and the whole religious structure it supported was worship. It was worship. It was not merely to fulfill a duty or an obligation. It was to express trust in God as the covenant-keeping God. It was an expression of worship. And when administered rightly and given rightly, it was, as was mentioned in Deuteronomy 29, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. It was that a reflection of worship, and as a right reflection of worship, it brought from God his blessing, his goodness, uh, an overflourishing to his people. And so in doing that, as an expression of worship, then there are several things that undergirded the mindset and the worldview and the understanding of the covenant uh, behind all of the giving. And let me note a few of you, these to you. And this relates to us as well. First of all, the tithes were an acknowledgement of God's ownership of all things. It was an acknowledgement of ownership of God, uh, God's ownership of all things. That, that everything that they had, everything that anyone had was in fact from God. No, no one could claim ultimate ownership of any of their possessions. None of the nations could do so, and particularly Israel, even the land that they had was a gift of God. It was an expression of his mercy. It was the fruit of his promise to them in covenant. It didn't ultimately belong to them. Let me just to give you a feel for this, read several verses. Don't try to write them all down. I'm just going to read them to give you a sense of it. Exodus 19.5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my possession among all the peoples. Listen, for all of the earth is mine. It's mine. I own the earth. I own you. I own all of the nations. Leviticus 25.23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently. He's speaking of Sabbath regulations here. This land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. You are but aliens and sojourners with me. In other words, the whole land of Canaan, he says, don't begin to think that it's your land and that you can act with it as you want. It's my land and you are to treat it as I command you. And when you don't, I'll spit you out. And that was part of the exile, actually, is that he spit them out of the land because they weren't observing the Sabbath and they were corrupting all that was his. And so he sent them away into judgment. 
He says, it's my land. The earth is mine. Numbers 8, 17. For every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine among the men of the animals. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. In other words, he says, the life of all of your firstborn are mine. All life is mine. Therefore, because you were spared, unlike Egypt, who did not put the blood on the doorpost, you owe to me an offering For my sparing your firstborn. Why? Because the firstborn actually belong to me. They're mine. Psalm 50, 10, verse verse 10 and 12. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. And there in the context of saying, I don't need your offerings. I'm not benefited by your gifts. I'm not in any way increased by the wealth that you bring to me. It is mine. And the point of saying that, at least in that context, was this. is saying, don't think that you're supplying me something I need. What I require of you is a right heart, not your gifts. As a matter of fact, he rebukes them in other places, Isaiah 1 particularly, and saying all of your gifts to me when they're not done with a right heart are in fact a stench in my nostrils. He says, everything is mine. You're not bringing this out of any need. You're bringing it as an expression of worship. One more, Psalm 60, verse 7. Gilead is mine, he says. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. And Judah is my scepter. All of the tribes, all of the nations, all of the peoples are mine. So it is an acknowledgement of God's ownership of all things. As a matter of fact, I'll just reference this. Uh, This is beautifully expressed by David in his prayer. So David, nearing the end of his life, having spent so much of his effort and taken the spoils of his wars and, and so forth as, and, and piled up all that was necessary eventually to build the temple. He wanted to build it. Remember, he couldn't. He was a man of bloodshed. That was going to be given to his son Solomon to do. That's the Solomonic temple, the first temple among the nation of Israel. And David says this, however, as he looks at all that had been supplied for the building of this temple. He says this in his prayer. And again, this is a reflection of what the right heart was. He says, so David blessed the Lord inside of all the assembly. And he said, blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Interestingly, this is a footnote to this. Here are the echoes in his prayer the echoes of this prayer in the worship of the saints at the end of the ages before the throne of God in Revelation uh, chapter 5. He says, both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all and in your hand is power and might and it lies in your hand to make great, great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are these my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? Here's the key. For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. We are sojourners before you, and tenants, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build your house for your holy name, it is from your hand, and all is yours. Since I know, O God, my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now, with joy, I have seen your people who are present here to make their offerings to you willingly. And he goes on. 
The idea is when they had this abundance and they gave it, they acknowledged, I'm giving to you a small portion out of all that you have given to us. Everything is yours. You don't need it, but you have given us the privilege of giving it to you. And you've given us this privilege because you have blessed us. Everything is yours. We gladly give it to you. So first of all, giving was an acknowledgement of God's ownership of all things. Secondly, it was acknowledgement of God's rule over all things as king. Again, let me just mention some of these passages. Psalm 1016, the Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his hand. Psalm 20, verse 9, save, O Lord, may the king answer us in the day that we call. Psalm 68, 24, the heavens have seen, or they have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my king, into the sanctuary. Speaking there of the uh, the priest, the, the procession of the gifts and the emblems of his presence among his people brought into the sanctuary. Psalm 24 says this, a psalm we're familiar with. He begins with the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And he speaks of him as creator. He speaks of him as holy and those who come to him must have clean hands and a pure heart. And then he speaks of this glorious welcoming of God into his temple. He says, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So a part of their bringing the tithes was an acknowledgement that God was not only the owner of all things, he was the ruler of all things, he was king over all the earth, and he was specifically the king of his people Israel. And when they brought whatever gifts that they brought into the temple area, it was an acknowledgement, it was a tribute, as you were, to the king of kings, their king, the Lord God. As a matter of fact, one argues that this is the logic that is behind uh, that requirement of tithes by king, the king of the nation of Israel when they transitioned into the covenant nation. Remember, they said, God said, listen to the voice of the people. They, they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. So in other words, the king that I set over you that's like the nations, an earthly king, he has a right and he will exact from you the tithes to support his kingdom. But that's going to be in addition to what I have because you've rejected me as king. What you brought before me before was an acknowledgement of my kingship and that was sufficient. Now you want an earthly king, fine, I'll give it to you, but he also is going to have a right to exact from you a tithe and a tenth and it's going to be a greater burden on you. In other words, you're bringing greater burden on yourself. But here was at the heart of it. It was an acknowledgement of God's ownership of all things. It was an acknowledgement of God's kingship and rule over all things. But at the heart even more, it was an acknowledgement of God's gracious covenant. He says in Exodus 19 verses 5 through 6, You will be my treasured possession. Although, again, the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He emphasizes this in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, that of all the nations of the earth, all of the mighty kingdoms of the earth, you were the least, you were very small, the smallest in number. And I've not chosen you because of anything of yourself. I've not chosen you because of any benefit you can bring to me. I've chosen you for this simple fact, that I, as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, have set my love on you. I have chosen you among the nations. Why? Because it pleased me to do so. Because it delighted me to do so. 
and I have done so, and you are favored because I have shown my favor to you and for that alone. It was an amazing acknowledgement then that they were a people who stood under grace, who stood under mercy, who stood under the redeeming love of God. It was an acknowledgement that God, as you remember, How did their scriptures begin and how does scripture begin? With an acknowledgement that God is the creator and owner of all things. That's again what set Israel off from all of all the ancient Near East religions. Every other religion is that they worshipped one God. The one God who was the creator of all things. Who was second to none and equaled by none. He alone was God. It was an acknowledgement that God who was the owner of all things. And stands over the world as king and as judge. As he demonstrated in Genesis 6. They were no different from those people. We are no different from those people that were destroyed in the flood. We have hearts the same as they did that are evil in thoughts and intentions all our lives. He mentions that in Genesis 9 as well. Or excuse me, Genesis 8. He chose Israel then from all of the among the nations to be his own possession, his people, the recipients of his revelation, of his mercy, of his promises, and his covenant. And so whatever they gave was an acknowledgement that they are a people who had received grace. They were not any more innocent or worthy. They were as guilty as Egypt was, whom he destroyed. They were as guilty as other nations around them. Sometimes he even accused them of being worse than the nations around them. But they had received mercy. They had received the covenant. They had received the promises. So tithing was one demonstration of this relationship, of this acknowledgement of who God is and their relationship with him. And so again, it was not simply to be a perfunctory act at the temple, but it was coming before God's presence. It was coming before God himself when it was rightly understood and when the heart was right. Listen to this in Deuteronomy chapter 12. He says this in verse 5. Uh, But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all of your tribes. That's where they were to bring the offering. To establish his name there for his dwelling and there you shall come. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. The point of that is simply to note this. That when they brought their offerings, it was not merely a a, a function of religious duty or an act of of state. It was an act of worship. They were bringing it before God. They were laying it at the feet of God. They were acknowledging God's presence in this place. And their gift is an expression of worship to him, the God who had called them. As a matter of fact, it was to be attended with a confession. And this is particularly referring to the tithe That was given on the third year. But listen to the confession. He says, When you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. And he says this in verse 13. You shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion of my house and also have given it to the Levite and the alien, the orphan, and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed or forgotten any of your commandments. I have not eaten of it while mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor offered any of it to the dead. I have listened. In other words, it's an acceptable sacrifice. I have listened to the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground which you have given us, a land flowing with milk and honey as you swore to, your, to our fathers. In other words... It was to be given with the confession that everything is yours, 
that we stand in relation to, to you by covenant of mercy and grace, and this is to bring then glory and honor to you. As I noted before then, it's an expression, the ties were of the command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Then how was tithing given rightly or accepted rightly, and what was the effect it was to have in the heart? It was then tithing and giving to God, and now imagine this, and we'll expand on this, but but what is happening in the act of giving? We, we naturally want to possess everything. We, we want to see it as our possessions. We're giving from our stuff. But tithing as an act of worship confronts all of that. It is to say even at the heart level, as I understand that all that I have I receive as a gift, but it doesn't belong to me ultimately. It belongs to God. And therefore tithing is established by God in one sense as well to be a reminder of that. He, owes all thing, that he owns all things and that we are to fear him. We read it earlier. Let me read it to you again. Deuteronomy 14, 23. He says this, or in Deuteronomy 14. He says, You shall tithe again all that you sow in the field. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord, the place he chooses, uh, so on. He says this at the end of verse 23. So that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Tithing, when done in faith, was to produce fear and reverence in the hearts of his people. Tithing was to be done in light of this with an attitude of rejoicing. With rejoicing. It wasn't to be given begrudgingly. It wasn't to be given with a sense of regret. But it was to be given with a sense of joy. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 12, 7. There also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God, listen, and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. He says again in verse 12, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male and your female servants and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. He says again in verse 18, you shall eat before the Lord your God and where he will choose and, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God and he repeats the same thing in verse 27 and so forth. So when giving of the tithe was done with the right heart, it was to produce fear in his people. It was to be done with a rejoy, joyful heart and rejoicing at all of the abundance of grace that has been received from God. Again, in this way, it was to be an expression then of love to God and love to neighbor. It was a response to his gracious covenant. They were an expression, ties are, and they were an expression of faith in him. Not a means of winning favor with God or giving some required service, but it was a way to say, I worship you. I thank you. Now, just to illustrate that, to, because it is an expression of worship, it was designed to be that, that it also exposes a wrong heart. And I want to mention these briefly, but I want to get to this. In Malachi chapter 1, for example, Malachi chapter 1 is a good place to go here. He begins by addressing the priest, and he's going to confront them for their hypocrisy and the things that they were offering. And, and, and their hypocrisy was shown in this way, that they were offering things to God that were unworthy of him. They were to bring the best of the field, the best of the flock, and they were bringing the things that cost them nothing and keeping the best for themselves. And here is the priest. He says, then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? He says, 
O priests, you despise, who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? Here in verse 7, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. And you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. When you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Will he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? And then he goes on. He's saying, you're bringing to me even less that you would bring to a human ruler and a human governor. Am I to accept this from your hand? Am I to be honored by this? In fact, I am dishonored. In fact, what you're bringing to me is not an expression of worship, but it is an expression of your despising me, your rejection of me as your God. And I will not accept it. As a matter of fact, I will bring consequences. And then he relates it to the people in general in verse 8 of chapter 3. And he says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? He says this, listen, in tithes and offering. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be fruit in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And he goes on. In other words, then here he's saying, in fact, your lack of tithing, your lack of giving me all that I do, my name is an expression of unbelief. It's an expression of unbelief. You're holding back. You're not bringing to me everything. And the tithe could be a display of a heart that has a wrong view of God, that rejects the idea of the covenant of grace and actually shows manipulation and works righteousness. Let me give you just a couple of passages. And then I'll just make a brief comment. You're familiar with this. So Jesus, when he rebuked the Pharisees, he said this, Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, they had thought that by the minutia of what they had through rabbinical teaching come to understand as the requirement of God for a tithe, that they were by doing that pleasing and honoring God and he says no in fact you're not because what I'm after is the heart and understanding listen of my covenant and if you understand my covenant you're not going to deal with me on the basis of minutia of the law but you'll deal with me on the basis of a transformed heart seeking true justice true righteousness mercy care for others he looks at this from another angle in Luke chapter 18 you're familiar with this let me just read it to you Luke chapter 18, he says, he gave this parable because of those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And he said, two men went up into the temple, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you, I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. In other words, here was the deal. I give to you, you bless me. I give to you, and therefore I am righteous, much more righteous than those who don't give as I give. Now, it's easy to look at that, but let me suggest to you that this is a very common error, even among Christians. Not always so, well, in some ways it is so on the front, but it's a very common error, and the error is this, is to see what we do as a form of manipulation. As a matter of fact, Let me just make this comment. What set the the worship of Israel off from all of the other nations that had sacrifices and temple worship and, and those kind of things was this. At the heart, the essence of all pagan worship was this. 
manipulation. It was works and manipulation. At the heart of all pagan worship is this. If I do this for you, my gods, you do this for me. Israel fell into the same kind of error, and many Christians do today. If I do this, then God will bless me. If I do this, then God will reward me. It's, it's a tit for tat, as it were. It's, if I give him something, he'll, he'll honor me in it. This is essentially paganism wrapped up in the language of revealed religion. It is behind what we see much in the health and wealth. Give a seed money, a seed blessing, and God's going to cause it to increase. For you're, you'll have wealth and you'll have honor. Who is that for? Is that for God's glory? Or is it for one's own personal advantage? It's wrapped up in language of God's glory, but it's all about one's personal advantage. It's just another form of manipulation, of hocus pocus, of twisting God's arm to do something for us. That's not true giving. That's not the true heart of giving. In fact, it's precisely the opposite of true worship, which is not given to obtain anything but because of what one has already received. That is what true worship is. I'm gonna come back to part of this next week, but let me, let me end with this illustration. How is this illustrated? What is one of the truest expressions of it? And this will take us into the Lord's table. I think one of the greatest expressions of what the Lord really wants from us and wanted from his people, even Israel, was a heart of worship is found in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, and this is the account of the widow's might. Now he had just in the end of chapter 11 excoriated the, the, the religious leaders, the lawyers and the others, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, because of their hypocrisy. And then he goes and he, and he gives uh, an account of this woman, an observation that he was making. Uh, and, and he says this, and he says this. He said that this, this widow, this widow gave to him, oh my, I wrote down the wrong passage. I might have to do some of this from memory. Who knows where the widows might? Luke what? Tell me, nobody? This is your pop quiz. All right, I'm going to tell you. Well, if you'll remember that he gave after he excoriated the, the leaders, he was observing in the temple sitting opposite of a widow, and he, this widow came in, and she put in two small copper coins, the, a, a very low amount. And it says that this was in contrast to all of the wealthy people that he saw coming in and putting in these large sums of money. Now, that would have been very obvious because within the temple area, particularly in the women's court most likely, there were these 12 chests set up, and these chests were set, as mentioned in the likely like a trumpet shaped where it had a tapered so wide at the top and then it narrowed down to the bottom. Well, as they put in their coins, you could hear the sounds of the coins coming in. So as wealthy people came in and they put in a lot of coins, you'd hear all of this noise and people would go, wow, they put in a lot of money. But then you have this widow come along, this, this very poor widow, and she puts in only two coins, very little, and Jesus calls his disciples to himself, acknowledging that this is something significant, an important point that he wants to make. And he says, do you see what just happened? They were all putting in out of their wealth. They were all putting in out of their abundance. But this widow, he says, gave of all that she had. All that she had, he mentions, to live on. She gave from a true heart. She gave from a right heart. I want you to understand that God isn't interested in the amount. He was interested in the heart. As a matter of fact, he said, they put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. That was the heart. 
That was a heart of love to God and love for neighbor. That was a heart that expressed true covenant faith, true acknowledgement of who God is. That was a heart that said, I love God so much that whatever I can give to him, even if it costs me everything, uh, I will give to him joyfully. One said, commenting on that, it's well to remember that God measures giving not by what we give, but by what we keep for ourselves. So it's really about the gospel then, isn't it? It's really about the gospel. It's really about understanding grace. Unlike the rich young ruler who was unwilling to part with his riches, who found his treasure on earth because he did not yet understand the glory of Christ and the glory of grace and the glory of a redeemer and the glory of the Messiah, the glory of the promise of all that was in him and of the kingdom that could be attained only through God's mercy, he left that opportunity because he was somebody, he said, who owned much. He had much property. He had much prestige. He had much authority. He had attained much in his young life. But it was ultimately an attainment that would deceive him and leave him empty for eternity under the judgment of God. And so unlike that rich young ruler, unlike the one who was unwilling to give up everything, this widow stands for us an example of what true giving is. This is the one who understood mercy. This is the one who understood a covenant of grace. This is the one who understood that we give because we have received, and more than what we've received earthly, for she had received very little by that measure, but she had received spiritually forgiveness of her sin. She had received mercy. She had received the promises of God, which apparently she believed and she understood. That at least is the implication in that. And so it is with us. What we give in our view of giving reflects our view of God. It reflects our view of the gospel. When we see, we so often think it's so our natural tendency to think of us as owning things and we're going to give God out of our stuff instead of realizing that what we have belongs to God. We are simply giving back to him and it's means of expressing worship, a means of expressing worship. And that's what we express here as we come to the table. And so we're going to look at that more closely from a Christian perspective and in light of the coming of Christ next week. But that is what's pictured for us as well in the table as we come. We stand in the kingdom of God. And to stand in the kingdom of God is to stand under his mercy and his forgiveness and his righteousness. It is to have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom, he says, Paul does, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And we come then to him who gave us everything so that he might give us life. Let's pray, and then we'll remember the table together. Father, there's so much to consider in this call of, upon our lives by you to express worship in what we give. Lord, if there's one thing that we tend to do, it is to hold on not only to stuff, but to our own lives. And yet, the gospel calls us to exactly the opposite. We are to give ourselves Would you work in us an understanding of the kingdom? Would you work in us an understanding of the gospel in such a way that our hearts would reflect not any kind of manipulation, not any kind of stinginess, but that joyful, glad, open-hearted delight in giving to you that was demonstrated in this widow in the temple, poor though she was, and yet abundant in grace. Work that in us, Lord, particularly as we consider your table this morning. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.